With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now... In the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Garcella finally tells his story, and so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to the Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the Eight Side Network. This is America's Sports Talk Show, Sports Byline USA. Here's Ron Barr. Dr. Harry Edwards joins us on Sports Byline. He's been with us many times before, noted sports sociologist, and he's been a consultant for Major League Baseball, the Golden State Warriors, and the San Francisco 49ers on issues of racial diversity in sports. And he organized back in 1968 the Black Power and Equality Gesture at the 68 Mexico Olympics, and now he is involved in an important project at San Jose State. It's the newly formed Institute for the Study of Sports, Society, and Social Change, and the Institute is dedicated to research, analysis, and education on developments at the intersection of sport and society, and its focus is on the substance, dynamics, and significance of sport as a factor in social change. That's a lot of words. Can you break it down for me, Harry? Yeah. Um, basically, what the Institute will do was to cut, is to cut through the fog of misunderstanding and uh, non-comprehension of the significance of the role of sport in society. In every era uh, since the turn of the 20th century, sport has played a significant role in terms of our perceptions, not only of what we do, but of who we are and what we're supposed to stand for. Whether you're talking about uh, Jack Johnson becoming the first African-American heavyweight uh, champion of the world, or whether you're talking about Jesse Owens at the 1936 Olympics, or Joe Lewis and his fights against Max Schmeling, whether you're talking about Jackie Robinson uh, and his uh, a role in desegregating sport, or Kenny Washington and Woody Strode, Marion Motley and Bill Willis, uh, in their roles in desegregating what ultimately became the NFL. Smith and Carlos at the Mexico City Olympics, Arthur Ashe and his struggle against apartheid in South Africa, and the role that that played right up until um, uh, Nelson Mandela was uh, released from jail and uh, made president of that uh, long benighted uh, nation uh, through Kurt Flood and his push for uh, free agency for athletes so that they had some role in terms of uh, where they worked and how long they worked there. All of those issues, Billie Jean King, of course, and Martina Navratilova and their efforts to uh, uh, push 
um, women's sports and women's equality uh, years before Title IX and Roe v. Wade came into vogue in 1972. All of that uh, is indicative of the role that sport has played historically in social change. But if you pick up a history book or a sociology book, uh, it's very seldom that you will see uh, those kinds of uh, uh, contributions uh, made. Uh, if it were not for Muhammad Ali and his struggle to, main, to, to uh, uh, achieve the legitimacy of his name, uh, a name that ultimately came not only to be accepted but embraced, it's hard to believe that someone with a funny-sounding name like Barack Hussein Obama would have ever become president of the United States uh, once, much less twice. So sport has played these roles um, uh, since the turn of the 20th century uh, in American society, and prior to that, for many immigrant immigrant groups, for European immigrant groups, uh, and it has not been sufficiently uh, recorded, documented, or analyzed. The Institute hopes to go back, redo much of that uh, misbegotten, forgotten, buried, denied history, as well as stay out in front of developments that we have today in terms of their impact on um, life uh, and uh, the dynamics of social institutions in this country. Harry, why sports uh, having its significance in social change and everything? I mean, everything you mentioned were significant moments, significant people as well. But why sports? Is there anything else institutionalized that matches what sports has done as far as society change? Not really. Uh, there never has been and there probably never will be. Uh, one, because of the fact that we invest sports with our most uh, heartfelt uh, social, political values and sentiments. In American society, competitiveness, discipline, hard work, courage, character, uh, even patriotism and religiosity. When it comes down to the pregame prayer and the flying of the colors on the field before the game, uh, all of that uh, is indicative of our most uh, deeply felt, deeply rooted secular values and sentiments, the things that uh, as a people and as a nation uh, we pride ourselves on believing in and standing for. Sports is invested with all of that. And so when a fan goes to a game and says, we won or we lost, even though he never took a pitch, he never threw a block, he never – uh, uh, had to undergo a tackle or to be or to hit the three-point play at the end to win the game. The identification is so close that it's not uh, they won, it's we won. You don't see that when fans go to movies and watch a movie by their favorite movie star. Uh, the only thing that comes close to it is politics. And sports and politics are inextricably interwoven, right down to teams being invited to the White House, photo ops with athletes and so forth. And, of course, uh, athletes having a serious role in uh, political developments and affairs. So that's the first reason. It is so intricately, inextricably intertwined with our most deeply felt uh, secular uh, uh, societal beliefs and sentiments and values. The second reason is that athletes, for that reason, have such a high profile. So uh, when I did a recent talk, uh, matter of fact, uh, about a year and a half ago, to a group of 
um, summer campers, uh, junior high school young boys, and I asked them, I said, you uh, can have um, uh, a role of one of three people, not all three, but you can pick one that you want to be. The three are President Barack Obama, Steph Curry, and uh, LeBron James. And I asked, how many of you want to be Barack Obama? This is 200 kids. Three hands went up. They want to be LeBron James. They want to be Steph Curry. They want to be that high-profile person out there that's doing the heroic thing on the basketball court, on the football field, uh, and that's the stature of these athletes um, in the age of uh, media, sports, sports media saturation and uh, the social media, the Internet. So for those reasons, what athletes do, what athletes think, why athletes matter uh, is so critical, uh, particularly uh, today. You name three people. All of them happen to be African-American. What if one of those, one of the athletes had been white? What do you think the, uh, the voting would have been? It would depend upon the population. If you had said Tom Brady, uh, Drew Brees, or uh, Manning uh, from the New York Giants, you probably would have gotten uh, put one of those, two or three of those guys, and you would have gotten the uh, the same kind of reaction. I think that it's uh, to some degree uh, uh, thinned out when you cross racial lines because there are so many alternative role models that young white kids can aspire to. When you come to African-Americans, Latinos, and others, today's sports still is the preeminent premier uh, almost standalone idol uh, that uh, uh, people identify with and can look up to. Uh, but even when you have an African-American president in the White House, when you say, do you want to be Barack Obama, Steph Curry, or LeBron James, uh, there's, still, and I'm, there's still no contest. And I think that it would be the same if it were their parents, because they would look at Barack Obama and see that he left office with his hair almost as white as snow. He looked as old as Nelson Mandela. Uh, and Nelson had 45 years on him. Uh, they would say, yeah, I think I want to be Steph, too, because I know that there's going to be next season. And if I win, people are going to forget about the championship that I lost last year. Dr. Harry Edwards is with us, noted sports sociologist. We're talking about the Institute for the Study of Sports Society and social change. Harry, we only have about a minute before we have to break here. What are the goals of the Institute? We want to create a center where anyone can uh, log in and find uh, answers or research focused upon critical questions. What is the impact of a, a team going to the White House without its black players? What is the impact in the locker room of an individual taking a knee in a professional sport during the playing of the national anthem? What is the impact of increasing numbers of athletes speaking out and speaking up across the spectrum of sports about burgeoning social issues? What is likely to be the impact of the era of Trump on this uh, intensification of athlete activism? Is it going to displace Black Lives Matter? Is it going to compound Black Lives Matter? Is it going to be something that's so far out 
that we have not yet been able to wrap our minds around all of the various areas involving women, involving gays, involving religious minorities, involving uh, immigrants, involving African-Americans, and how this might play out in the sports realm. The only thing that we know is that it's going to play out in the sports realm and it's going to have some impact in terms of social change. Dr. Harry Edwards with us. Very interesting, insightful conversation. It always is with Harry. And when we come back on the other side, you heard him say about athlete activism. And we're going to talk about that, why it's become so active with athletes and also some of the goals that they're trying to reach. We do that as we continue across the country and around the world. Good to have you with us here on Sports Byline. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And Lord was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f- themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. This is America's Sports Talk Show, Sports Byline USA. Here's Ron Barr. Dr. Harry Edwards staying with us uh, as, again, he's been a consultant for Major League Baseball, the Golden State Warriors, and the San Francisco 49ers on issues of racial diversity in sports. And we're talking about the institute now that he has helped develop down at San Jose State, his alma mater, for the study of sports, society, and social change. You mentioned uh, athlete activism. That is something that has come into play, I would say, relatively recently. Why has that been the case? Well, athlete activism has been around for some time. I mean, you go back to the 1960s, uh, Bill Russell, uh, Jim Brown, uh, Smith and Carlos, um, Arthur Ashe, uh, Martina Navratilova, uh, Billie Jean King. These were all athlete activists. What has changed today and what has intensified uh, that realm of uh, social conduct in American society in particular has been the social media. Uh, we have today the possibility of contacting millions of people simultaneously in real time. Back in the 1960s when I organized the Olympic Project for Human Rights that resulted in the demonstrations at Mexico City, I would call uh, 100 people 
take half the day to do it using a rotary phone, hope that 50 of them would call me back and hope that I would be around for, uh, to, to answer 20 of those calls and maybe 10 of them would agree uh, to meet and carry on the conversation. Today, an athlete can go online, put his Twitter message on his 140 characters, hit the most dangerous, uh, provocative, uh, revolutionary four-letter word in the history of humanity, S-E-N-D, and all of a sudden it goes out to two or three million people, and the next thing you know, it's all over the world. So the social media has so intensified the power of communication that these high-profile athletes that command such attention in the popular culture today can communicate not just to the masses of people, but to each other uh, and organize and mobilize around uh, certain ideas and concerns that would have been possible, up, impossible up to this point. So that has been the key factor that has essentially changed everything. The other point that I would like to make about the social media is that nobody has found out how do we manage it? How do we constructively manage that which we can neither avoid nor eliminate, which is the, the messaging power of the social media? of the emails, the electronic mails, the Twitters, uh, and, 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 and so forth. So those are two factors that have made this whole situation almost a wild, wild west kind of scenario when it comes down to, one, uh, the mobilization of athletes, but in the course of the messaging and increasing radicalization of athletes. Uh, with all of the consequences and so forth that flow that flowed therefrom, I want to ask you about Colin Kaepernick's uh, kneel down uh, protest, and and tell me if you think I'm wrong on this. Just boiling it down, in a sense, is the fact that it was a black man protesting something that was legitimate in his mind, and it was uh, up against a symbol that has been a part of the United States that everybody thinks is the symbol of this country, instead of realizing. It was an effort to get somebody to hear the voice about some things that were happening that were not reflective of the United States' culture and the way it should be conducted. Am I correct in that observation? Well, first of all, look, uh, the, the national anthem means different things, not just to different individuals but to different groups. Uh, when the national anthem is played, there are millions of people who rightfully see the soldiers who bear arms who, when the nation calls, stand up and say, send me. Uh, they rightfully see all of those opportunities, all of those things that America uh, both to some degree stands for and that it professes to stand for. Other people, when they hear the national anthem, they see a black man swinging from a tree in Mississippi or in Georgia or in Alabama. They see a black man shot in the back as he's running away from a police officer. And so when the song says, the land of the free and the home of the brave, they don't see that same image that other groups see. Because now, especially with the camera phone, again, the impact of the social media, everybody is essentially a reporter, a news reporter. And so they get that image. And that image is what stands out against the background of the playing of the national anthem. And what 
Colin Kaepernick was saying was, this is an America that we must also recognize and deal with. And he was not wrong. It would be great if everybody saw the same America, but everybody does not live the same America. And that is one thing that many people do not want to recognize. And to be perfectly honest with you, uh, Ron, it wasn't so much in many instances that they disagreed with Cap kneeling during the playing of the national anthem. They wouldn't care if it was the if it was the playing of chopsticks. <laughs> they wanted him to sit down and shut up. They wanted to watch their football. They did not want to have to look at the fact that there are many Americans and not all Americans experience the same America, and that is a contradiction. And that's before we even get to the fact that the national anthem itself, nobody ever sings the second uh, stanza. Why? Because it celebrates the murder of slaves who were struggling to free themselves, uh, and nobody ever sings that second stanza. Cap knew about the second stanza. He understood the history of the song, which many, if not most Americans, do not understand. So when you put it, put all of that together, I can understand people who see uh, the uh, Donna Reed show America, who see the Beaver Cleaver America, who see the Mayberry RFD America, and maybe even live it. But that's not the America that millions of other people live every day. And today we have the camera camera footage to prove it. So that's what Cap was drawing attention to. And for those who said it shouldn't be done during the playing of the national anthem, I understand that. But there's an America that they should have to look at if we have to live it. And that is what Cap's message was. You know as well as I do, the NFL is a powerful platform And I was very impressed with 49ers CEO Jed York had to say, and the quote is, when Collins started a conversation, to me, it's not whether you agree with Collins' words, his actions, or anything else. It's the underlying cause. Why is he doing something, and what can I do about it? That's a very enlightened uh, view on all of this. Absolutely. And Jed, when when Cap first sat down, before he even kneeled, Jed called the meeting and said, Doc, what do we do in terms of managing this? And there was a whole series of discussions around how do you productively and constructively manage, again, that which you can neither eliminate nor avoid because it's coming. And Jed not only uh, demonstrated that kind of uh, wisdom and, and, and proactive um, uh, disposition, uh, he understood that what Cap was trying to say was something that had been called for for more than 50 years in this country. The Kerner Commission report, in the wake of the assassination of Dr. King, had a, uh, a principal uh, suggestion that we begin an open, honest conversation on race in this country. When I went in to talk to Jed, one of the things that I pointed out was that this might be that conversation that people have been trying to avoid for years, that all of the presidents, the talking heads, the pundits, the civil rights leaders, the activists, the Black Lives Matter people have not been able to provoke. But a mixed-race kid raised in Turlock went to college in Reno, Nevada, 
comes to the 49ers where he is an injured backup and does something, and all of a sudden the president of the United States from a podium in Beijing, China, is answering a question about whether or not he feels that what Colin Kaepernick is doing is appropriate and worthy. Down to a shoeshine man in an airport in Atlanta who, uh, when he saw my 49er cap, said, hey, let, let, let me ask you something. To the guy who was a white guy who was handling the carousel on Carousel 3 in San Francisco, Dr. Edwards, I, let, let, let me ask you something about Colin Kaepernick and what he's trying to do. Colin started the conversation. Might have been the last guy that anybody would have suspected would start it, but he was the one that provoked the conversation, which is why I strongly advocated for and made happen uh, that his uh, shoes, the, the jersey that he wore, the Time magazine with his picture on the cover, and a picture of him kneeling be put in the Smithsonian uh, Museum as part of uh, that activist tradition that is highlighted in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, he's that important in this uh, phase of American sports history. So uh, it's, it's, it's critical to understand uh, what Jed was trying to get at and what Jed York understood early on. And not only did he understand it and say we're going to manage this productively and constructively, he put a million dollars of his own money on the table, which helped finance the first event sponsored by the Institute for the Study of Sports Society and Social Change at San Jose State. We have about three minutes left. Are you optimistic, pessimistic uh, that sport will change society and social, uh, the social atmosphere in any great degree over the next five to ten years? Absolutely. I am. Look, Jackie Robinson was our Gandhi. We didn't know anything about Gandhi. Couldn't even spell his name. But we knew something about nonviolent direct action 10 years before Dr. King ever came on the scene in 1956 with the Montgomery bus boycott. Because Jackie Robinson had been on the baseball field since 1947. And over that period of time, the black people sitting in the stands heard the uh, epithet slung at him out of the stands and from the dugout of the opposing team. They saw the black cats thrown on the field. They saw people sliding in the second base with their spikes up trying to hurt Jackie. But we knew at that time, those people knew, they had to maintain their cool. Jackie, losing his cool on the field, may have started a baseball uh, rhubarb, but if they had started something in the stands, it could have spilled into a full-fledged race riot uh, in the streets. And so blacks had to understand that Jackie's effort was the first real effort of at nonviolent direct action. So when uh, Dr. King came on the scene 10 years later in 1956, Jackie had already primed the pump and had demonstrated that nonviolent direct action worked. He turned the other cheek, he stayed active, and went directly at all of the prejudice and bigotry that had kept black people out of Major League Baseball. So I know that sports can help change society. Without sports, there's no uh, Barack Obama in uh, the White House. So uh, we need to keep the faith, continue to struggle, understand that sports is not the tar Department of Human Affairs, but a uh, important institution 
uh, inextricably bound up with other institutions and other institutional struggles in American society. Am I optimistic? I'm more than that. I am enthusiastically hopeful that this situation uh, will eventually be impacted by sports in a very, very significant way. In about 45 seconds, Harry, what might be the next area that will see social change because of sport? Well, I think that you're going to, because of the concussions and because of what's happening in um, football, I think that there's going to be tremendous pressure for the next commissioner of uh, the NFL uh, to be African-American. And I think that uh, the other thing that I would say is that you're going to begin to see women responding to the cutbacks in terms of women's medical services, because while people uh, remember that Title IX, which opened up sports to women, came in vogue in 1972, so did Roe v. Wade, so that women could actually have a sports career, so that a school could give a woman an athletic scholarship in September, knowing that she was going to be around to play in the NC2A finals or to run in the uh, NC2A track meet uh, in June. So uh, all of that's on the table in terms of uh, uh, the uh, impetus around sports. Harry, I want to thank you as always. Very insightful conversations. You've been very kind to me. Again, congratulations on the Institute for the Study of Sport, Society, and Social Change. Take care, my friend. Thank you very much for having me. Always an interesting conversation with Dr. Harry Edwards, noted sports sociologist. We continue with more of you and Sports Byline. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison... Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. This is America's Sports Talk Show, Sports Byline USA. Here's Ron Barr.
Nate Dancy joins us on Sports Byline. Second baseman, also played in the Negro Leagues with the Memphis Red Sox as a teen in the 1950s and also played with the Kansas City Monarchs and the Birmingham Black Barons. And he played in the 1960 East-West All-Star Game as well. And he is a part of baseball history that needs to be remembered forever, the Negro Leagues. You grew up in Arkansas, and I know your family was a big baseball family. Tell me a little bit about growing up and also about your family. Okay, Ryan, that's it. I was born in 1937. I was born in a little town called Earl, Arkansas. And my, my family was very sports people. They loved sports. In fact, my father was a baseball player also. He played a little ball. But he, was a, he got to be a minister. He was a pastor. And my mother was just a housewife. So I wasn't the only one that played. I had a brother older than me named Eddie. I also played. But we both played together. We were kind of like the exciting stars in another town of Arkansas. <laughs> I remember uh, talking with Mudcat Grant, and he told me about the fact that baseball and churches were very strongly connected. What was he talking about? Because I remember telling him I had dr- driven by a, a church out in the middle of a field, and behind it were African-Americans who were in their dress shirts and had rolled up their sleeves and were playing baseball behind the church. That's right. They, used to have, they, they built a park right behind the churches, right? <laughs> what was it about church and baseball that had that strong connection? Well, they just loved baseball, and then and, and, uh, they were glad to see, you know, the people were really trying to play the game. And then they discovered that they had some talent. So with some good ball players, they got an opportunity to play, and then they showed their talent. And then, then they got followers from the community. They thought, as good as you got, and, and, and draw a little excitement, then the people started following you because they wanted to see you play. Tell me about your first time with the Negro League uh, competition. Okay, the first time that I got introduced to the Negro League was in Memphis, Tennessee, the Memphis Red Sox. And the manager was Goose Curry, Mr. Goose Curry. And my brother played first base for, for the Red Sox. And I went over really to see him play. And the, and the shortstop got hurt. So they didn't have nobody else to play. And my brother, my, uh, my, father, my brother told uh, the manager, said, my little brother, that he can play infield. And he, he said, what did he do? He, he, he said, send in his pants. So he came over and asked me, Hey, little dancer, what position you play? I said, I play second base and shortstop. Anywhere in the infield and outfield. I just I play baseball. So he asked me, can you play a shortstop? I said, sure, I can play. Okay. And and uh, after when that first happened, I got a chance to play. He said, you got a glove? I yes, I got my glove right here. I had to twist up and back in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so he come right. They gave me some uniform, gave me a uniform. I dressed in the dugout and went right on the field and started playing. And the first time I got up, I hit a single up the middle and, and turned it to turn a single into a double. And they saw me say, oh, you can run, too. <laughs> and they were, the next exciting play I remember is a guy hit a baseball, hit a, hit a shot in the hole. And I backhanded and turned the guy out at first base. And then they made all the people in the stand just stood up and applauded me. And ever since then, I, was, I really was too young to be playing. But uh, Mr. Curry got my parents to sign a consent for me to play. And that's how I got introduced to the Memphis Red Sox. What was the appeal of baseball to uh, to black populace? Uh, I mean, what is it that made them feel so strongly about the game? Because they weren't able to play uh, in Major League Baseball. Was this an effort and was this a receptive uh, audience because of the fact that it made them feel equal to some degree? There you go. They feel like they didn't get an opportunity to play and when. The, when the Negro League was organized, they had their own 
on baseball parks. And so they started following the game because they really loved the sports, the gang of baseball, which is all American game. Who were some of had Another good thing about it, in that same, in that same town of Mr. Tennessee, they had a, uh, another organizer, my league team, that called the Mrs. Chicks. I don't know if you ever heard of it. No. But they had a, they had a team called the Mrs. Chicks, and that was all Caucasian. That was all white teams. And the Mr. Red Sox was all black team. <laughs> so it, it was just exciting, because, but we got followers from both sides of uh, nationality of people because everybody loved to get to the gang of baseball. Nate, how important was uh, baseball at that particular time uh, in everyone's life, but particularly for the African-American, whether they were a player or whether they were just part of the African-American community? I think it was very important because they were just great. They had great fans that followed the game, and then to see a black person play, they were just excited, especially when they had a little talent. And they told me, you know, they always said, hey, this little guy here got talent. Cause I was kind of I was, I didn't not say I was exceptionally good, but I was pretty good. I was pretty good. You I could run. I could, and, and my and my uh, the man that I really wanted to be like was Jackie Robinson, because Jackie and I played the same position, second base. So that's why I really wanted to be like Jackie because I ran good and I hit with power and I could hit. How did the play- that's, what, that's what really got me going. How did the players in the uh, Negro Leagues feel about Jackie when he was finally picked to be the first African-American to play in Major League Baseball? Well, believe it or not, some of them were jealous and some was, was, was proud because Jackie was a tremendous young man. Not only that, Jackie was the type of individual, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that Jackie got through it with all the punishment and, and the misusing that he got and how he was treated coming up because Jackie was – he was Jackie was was really a good guy, but he could get pretty arrogant also. <laughs> but when I when he made it, that was that was the most exciting thing that I ever witnessed in my lifetime. Yeah, I know a lot of people don't realize that uh, when you guys played, uh, that you not had you didn't just have African American uh, audiences, fans. You had white fans as well. They loved the game that you all played. We had more white fans than we had African American because we traveled. See. And everywhere we go, when they find out that the Kansas City Monarchs was coming, I mean, they had to rope the, they had to rope the fields off for the people coming in. It was just so exciting. And then we sat there, sometimes we sat there for 30 minutes an hour before the game started, just signing autographs. And they, were, they were so excited to see us play. Because we always put on a pretty good show for them. We put on, a, you know, like the infield, the infield was excited. And when we had a game, we had people get to the park early just to see us do the infield and, and batting practice. So that was really, really exciting to the gang also. What was the show that you all put on? Oh, we did a tremendous job because we went to the routine of, of, of uh, like we call it around the horn. The ball never stopped. Just the minute the ball was hit with the fungo, whoever was hit to a third baseman, he went to the second baseman, to the first baseman, and they kept right on around the circle. And that ball never never hit the ground. I'll tell you, we just, we just had, we had a routine that we really worked good. What I played with was named Ike Brown. He, he got drafted with the Detroit Tigers. Ike and I was a combination with the Kansas City Monarchs. Ike played shortstop and I played second base. When you think back of all the games that you played in, all the things that you witnessed as a player in the Negro Leagues, what are the ones that stand out to you? What are those memories that mean a lot to Nate Dancy? Well, what means a lot to Nate Dancy was when we was traveling and we played in a little, a little town in Indiana called Terry Hutt, Indiana. And they had a, a nice baseball park. It was something like in a dome, like. 
And I had one of the best years, the best nights I ever had in the game. I went five for five, and I led five for five. I had uh, singles, doubles, triples, and two home runs. And then they ended up stealing home plate on top of all that. <laughs> that was one of the most exciting games I think I ever witnessed. What was the legacy of the Negro Leagues, do you think? I think the legacy of being in the Negro League, if you like in my in my case, every year that I played in the Negro League, I made the All Star team. That's another that, that was another exciting thing. They have an All Star game they call it East and West East and West All Star, and I always represented in the uh, the West side. And we and, and I, like I said, in two years and in, in two years that I played and I hit, I won a band title. Nate, was there any resentment uh, on the Negro League players about the fact that they could not play baseball in Major League Baseball? How did they deal with that issue? Well, they didn't, they didn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't bad. It wasn't a, I mean, they deal with it because they knew the situation about integration, you know. But everybody really wanted to play in the Major League because that was a, that was, that was a bread and butter game, you know, bread and butter league. And everybody was trying to get to the Major League. And like even when I played, I was drafted, but I never got a chance to play in the major league. I was drafted for the, for the Minnesota Twins. I was there when uh, there was a young man there by the name of uh, I think it was, it was, it was, it was well, it wasn't, uh, I can't think of his name right now, but he was one of the best hitters in there. Carew was on there also. Remember Roy Carew? Sure. Okay, Carew was with the Twins when I was coming up. But the, the the best the one they had the, another guy that was a good hitter it was him and I was roommates I can't think of his name right now but he was a tremendous ball player. What would you like people to remember about the Negro Leagues? Giving the fans what they came to see an exciting ball game <laughs> and, and and real baseball and that's what they came to see and that's why they followed us because they knew they were going to see real baseball. It, and then they always told us that you guys could really play in the this team you guys got now could play in the major league. That's how great our team were. Well, Nate, I want to thank you very much for your time, for your remembrances, for your kindness as well. Uh, congratulations on an outstanding career in the Negro Leagues, and thanks for being a part of Sports Byline. Okay, and I appreciate you for having me on. Again, Nate Dancy, second baseman who played in the Negro Leagues with the Memphis Red Sox as a teenager back in the 50s, also played with the Kansas City Monarchs and Birmingham Black Barons. We continue with more of you and Sports Byline. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.